Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity titled, Improving Management of Atopic Dermatitis in Children and Adults with Novel Therapies, is provided by Clinical Care Options, LLC, and the Partners for Advancing Clinical Education, PACE, and is supported by educational grants from Insight and Sanofi and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. My name is Victoria Garcia Albea. I go by Tori. I'm a nurse practitioner at Leahy Dermatology in Burlington, Massachusetts. Today's talk is entitled Improving Management of Atopic Dermatitis in Children and Adults, Novel Therapies, Transition of Care, and Healthcare Disparities. I'm so happy to be joined by Dr. Benjamin Ungar, Assistant Professor in the Department of Dermatology at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City. Here are the disclosures. We have one learning objective to identify patients who may benefit from new and emerging therapies for atopic dermatitis based on patient factors and drug safety and efficacy. So just a little background on atopic dermatitis. It affects about 11 to 25% of children. The most common onset is between three to six months of age. Of those diagnosed with atopic dermatitis, 60% develop it by one, one year of age, 90% by age five years. It does affect about 10% of adults, 10 to 30% of pediatric cases persist into adulthood, and one in four adults with atopic dermatitis report adult onset of symptoms. Black, Asian, and Hispanic individuals are more likely to have atopic dermatitis than non-Hispanic whites. And the clinical presentation is variable based on age. Infants tend to have it more focused on their cheeks, their forehead, and scalp because they can't really move their bodies that much, so they kind of scratch against their car seat and whatever they're leaning up against. They sometimes have it on their extensor extremities, the arms and legs, flexural creases, As they get a little bit older, they're able to move more and control their body. They can scratch, so they have it more localized. So it's in the flexural creases, dorsal hands and feet, and the cheeks. Adolescents are starting to look a little bit more like the adult presentation, where it's, again, more focused. Palms and soles, face and neck, and then adults, flexural creases, dorsal hands and feet. We wanted to put in a slide here just reminding you that when you have a patient with darker skin, the erythema is going to be harder to appreciate. It's going to look more violaceous. You're going to look for lichenification, again, that violaceous rather than like that bright red color, um, but it'll have the same distribution. And as we know with psoriasis, there are several comorbidities that affect atopic dermatitis. Uh, so we, of course, know about the atopic um, Tetrad, ATP, asthma, food allergies, um, allergic rhinitis, conjunctivitis, eosinophilic esophagitis. There's immune-mediated conditions like alopecia areata and urticaria that our atopic derm patients are more um, at risk of getting. There's mental health and substance use concerns, depression, anxiety, self-harm, substance use, ADHD, and autism spectrum disorders. We're now learning... Uh, scarily enough that there are cardiovascular disease um, comorbidities, so hypertension, coronary and peripheral artery disease, congestive heart failure, thrombo, uh, emb- thromboembolic diseases, and then metabolic disorders, obesity, dyslipidemia, bone health, osteoporosis and fractures, and skin infections. 
So we're going to get into the treatment and management of this uh, common disease. So we're going to start with a case study. It's an 11-year-old girl who comes in with her mother. She was diagnosed with atopic dermatitis at age four, and she's had cyclical atopic dermatitis control after non-pharmacological and topical therapies were insufficient. We're going to hear from an actual patient and her mother who are describing the burdens of atopic dermatitis and significant impact of effective treatment when they were able to get it. So let's listen now. Eczema has really affected my life. Whenever people usually ask about it, um, I get really shy and I get, I don't really talk to them that much. So usually I'm really shy and I don't really talk about it a lot in front of my friends. And most of the people at the school that I go to don't really know that I have it. So a few years ago, I um, wasn't able to sleep with it a whole bunch, so I didn't really get sleep that often. So I um, got really tired, and I couldn't do a lot of stuff in school. So scratching while she's asleep um, has she's done that since she was a baby, um, and sometimes scratching until she's bleeding, and then blood on her sheets or pajamas. It has not been something that's been unusual. Missing school for medical appointments has been something that's come up or trying to explain what's going on to her teachers or if she needs special soap, special hand sanitizer. Her doctor told me that she needed to try something systemic. And at that time, there really wasn't there wasn't anything on the market that was approved for her age group. So we had to use um, an oral medication that was not approved for eczema. It's an oral um, chemotherapy agent and um, it required blood draws. It had a lot of risks, not a long-term option. The biologics, we were able to eventually get about six months later because we had a doctor that worked with us and we went through FDA compassionate care. For like injections, like I do it if it helps even a little bit. My eczema gets a lot better and I don't itch as much afterwards. I am getting up to my fourth year with shots. And so I also use lotion daily. It really helps. Like I used to have rashes all over my face and now I really don't. And there are a lot of things that have been helping me. So I'll get started on treatment options and the approach to you know care for uh, atopic dermatitis. And the idea of approaching this uh, treatment of this disease spans the whole spectrum from mild to severe disease, which we'll get into. Uh, but the basic idea is this kind of step care management approach where there are non-pharmacologic uh, approaches, um, topical treatments, and then systemic treatments, depending on the disease severity and response to the treatments. Um, and so this is an overview, but we're going to go into the details of all of these uh, with the idea of trying to treat flares and then uh, continue with maintenance therapy with the, the goal of um, reducing or hopefully eliminating flares. And so the first um, you know, key is to identify the AD disease severity. Um, and if it's in the mild to moderate range, there may be a little bit of a different approach um, initially uh, as opposed to the moderate to severe range, although the whole spectrum and the kind of approach from start to finish can be applied, again, based on the response to treatment and, and how well patients are doing. And so in this mild to moderate uh, range for AD, um, 
non-pharmacologic therapy is crucial and can be a very, very big impact um, in terms of preventing uh, disease flares. And then once patients are clear, to keep them uh, clear as well. And so uh, part of it may be identifying triggers that uh, lead to flares. Sometimes that can mean allergy testing uh, when patients have sensitivities to uh, different uh, external um, allergens such as fragrances and so on. Um, baths or showers, um, you know, bathing habits can have a big impact. Frequent and long, hot baths or showers can lead to drying out of the skin. Uh, harsh uh, soaps or cleansers can also contribute to that. Uh, often, uh, use of periodic bleach baths can help prevent flares as well. And so depending on the age of the patient, um, you can use a different amount of bleach, um, you know, two to three times a week, and that can uh, be very effective in helping to prevent flares. And then very crucially is very frequent and liberal um, application of moisturizers to keep the skin moist because the dry skin is a very important uh, contributing factor to flares and uh, disease uh, recurrence. Once non-pharmacologic interventions are not sufficient to prevent the disease from flaring or progressing, then traditional topical therapies may be used as well. And there are a few different classes um, available. So certainly the most commonly used and um, in some respects, the most versatile are uh, topical corticosteroids, uh, considered first-line treatments in patient, uh, patients who don't respond to those skincare routines, emollient use, and so on. Um, and typically these are applied, you know, one to two times a day, probably more commonly two times a day. And, and one of the major issues with them is um, addressing patient attitudes towards uh, steroids. Many patients have steroid phobias. And then the flip side of that is to make sure that they're appropriately educated and aware of the risk of side effects with long-term use. And so have an appropriate plan and clear instructions on the frequency and duration of use. Um, alternatives or um, second-line treatments may include uh, topical calcineurin inhibitors like tacrolimus ointment or hemicrolimus cream. Um, these can be used uh, in the short term. You know, sometimes um, it can be used for a little longer, uh, given you know less of a risk of the kind of long-term um, side effects that are associated with topical steroid use. Um, it's important to counsel patients that for the first few applications, there may be uh, burning or stinging, which sometimes can be pretty significant, uh, so that it's uh, important to make sure they're aware so they don't stop after the first uh, treatment. Um, and then another option is crisaberol, phosphodiesterase 4 inhibitor. Um, uh, it's an ointment that's uh, safe for use in uh, infants and older. And again, there can be significant uh, burning, discomfort, and and pain with application. So it's very important that patients are aware of that uh, and they can factor that into the use. Okay. And so that's, that's kind of the initial treatment approach for mild to moderate AD. Sometimes that's not sufficient. And sometimes the disease is more widespread and more significant. And um, if, you know, non-pharmacologic treatments and topical options are insufficient when optimized, of course, then it's very important to consider and, you know, not have a very, very high barrier to use of a systemic treatment. And so traditional systemic therapies um, have been used, you know, until relatively recently, very commonly. Uh, the goal, of course, is to try to use the minimal effective dose once there's a treatment response and a sustained treatment response, and then go to the, the minimal dose effective to, again, keep patients clear or uh, doing well. Um, Adjunctive therapies, both non-pharmacologic and topicals, are uh, important as well. 
And, you know, it's, it's very, very important to remember to try to avoid systemic corticosteroids, if at all possible. Uh, there's a very significant risk of a rebound flare uh, after ta taper completion, uh, even if tapered slowly. And this can be even uh, more difficult to treat often. There are some scenarios for very acute, severe exacerbations uh, used as a bridge uh, therapy to other systemic treatments where it may be appropriate. Some of the traditional systemic treatments that are used um, include cyclosporin, azathioprine, um, and methotrexate, mycophenolate. Um, cyclosporin tends to work the most quickly of all of these, um, and you know the rest of them can be effective with time as well. And so we mentioned, um, you know, the the kind of traditional systemic treatments, the traditional systemic immunosuppressive treatments. And one reason they're used less frequently now, and you know, certainly should be used uh, with caution, is that they are all associated with very significant, you know, side effects and risks. All of these uh, vary from treatment to treatment, and so when you know considering the use, it's very important to really remind yourself and be aware of the different uh, risks. That includes appropriate screening, blood work, uh, and monitoring as well. Um, and, you know, some patients may not be uh, candidates for some versus others. You know, for example, someone with significant renal impairment um, may not be um, the most appropriate candidate for cyclosporin. These systemic treatments, you know, the, the kind of traditional ones are certainly associated with all those side effects. And so fortunately, now we're in an age where there are safe, much safer and, uh, you know, typically more effective uh, systemic treatment options that can be used as well. And so the uh, the first of these that was approved now a little more than five years ago is dupilumab, indicated for moderate to severe AD, going down all the way to six months of age and, and older. More recently, within the last year, uh, another biologic, um, you know, cytokine targeting therapy, trilokinumab, which, uh, and I forgot to mention, you know, dupilumab blocks the IL-4 alpha receptor, which inhibits both IL-4 and IL-13 signaling. Trilokinumab, which is newer now, approved uh, about nine months ago, uh, inhibits IL-13 for adults. There's a new topical uh, JAK inhibitor, a new topical non-steroidal anti-inflammatory option um, approved just about a year ago. Um, it's indicated for mild to moderate AD patients, 12 years and up, and can be used uh, twice daily. And then uh, lastly, and most recently at the beginning of this year, two uh, oral systemic JAK inhibitors that both inhibit the JAK1 signaling are approved for moderate to severe AD. Uh, so abracitinib in adults, uh, upadacitinib in adolescents 12 years uh, and adults as well. Both are taken orally and uh, once daily. So when, when considering uh, dupilumab, so again, you know, this has been approved now for uh, the last five years, most recently earlier this year approved for six months and older. Um, so for uh, patients older than six, um, there's a loading dose of two injections. Uh, for those younger, there's no loading dose necessary. And then after that, there's a continued treatment for every two weeks, typically. And sometimes that can be stretched out depending on the age and so on to every four weeks. Uh, typically, it's very well tolerated, uh, but there are some common adverse events uh, to be aware of. So most commonly injection site reactions, which can be uh, lead to you know, erythema and some, some pain in the area of injection. Uh, conjunctivitis, um, often itchy red eyes that um, can certainly play um, a role fairly commonly. Um, 
And then there are some more significant adverse events that are much less common, but should be uh, aware of, uh, um, rather both you and patients should be aware of, uh, urticaria, angioedema, uh, more significant reactions like erythema multiforme, um, facial erythema, which is a rash that um, is accompanied with treatment, looks different than the uh, atopic dermatitis that would normally be there. And then not common exactly, but also uh, importantly, ocular symptoms that extend beyond conjunctivitis, blepharitis, keratitis, and so on, keep ophthalmologists in mind uh, if patients develop those symptoms. Okay, so the uh, dupilumab treatment is based on some uh, significant uh, clinical trials, which showed um, that moderate to severe AD patients responded very well um, with uh, every uh, week or every other week, and ultimately it was approved for every other week versus uh, placebo. And you know, importantly here is the, the orange uh, parts of the graph, which is that every other week dosing uh, that was approved. Uh, it's important to know that patients in this study uh, were able to use topical corticosteroids or, or topical calcineurin inhibitors, which from the perspective of the clinical trial uh, itself may um, you know, muddy the waters a little bit. But the reality is that in real, in real world uh, practice, as we know, it's important to use adjunctive treatments um, when necessary, such as topical steroids or topical calcineurin inhibitors, or potentially some uh, other options that we've discussed as well. And so the IGA score, the investigator global assessment response was uh, pretty significant. Easy 75 responses, which essentially are 75% um, improvement in disease severity. Um, and you can see here at week 16, it was almost 70% of patients achieving that uh, result. And then uh, that was maintained with continued treatment for 50, uh, 52 weeks a year. And now we have data that extends beyond that showing uh, continued um, uh, response for many patients. It's very important also that we consider the patient experience with these treatments. Um, you know, it's, I think many of us have the perspective of having the patient in front of us and looking and examining them and saying, okay, I see some erythema, I see some eczematous lesions. Um, but ultimately it's, it's very, very important to remember the patient treatment perspective, uh, which is that they want to feel better. They want to have an improved quality of life. And so when we look at a dupilumab, you know, patient oriented, eczema measures, we can again, again see that uh, there are very significant responses here. And so the number of days here with itchy skin um, in the past week, um, and you can see over there on the right, the, the, the responses with treatment. So even at 16 weeks, four months of treatment, you know, a non-trivial percent of patients had uh, no days of itching at all. Um, another large block had one to two days of itching. Um, you know, and, and so on. So definitely a significant improvement and can be very effective. So more recently, uh, trailokinumab, again, IL-13 uh, inhibitor uh, approved uh, several months ago. And so the initial dose maybe is a little more onerous or four initial loading uh, injections. And then after that, it's two injections every two weeks. Um, uh, important to note that on the FDA label, there is the potential to decrease to treatment every four weeks for patients who, uh, who weigh less than 100 kilograms and who had that response that are, that are clear, nearly clear after 16 weeks. So that is something that potentially can um, be considered in, in that patient population. Similar to uh, dupilumab, there are in injection site reactions that are associated with it. 
upper respiratory tract infections and headaches as well. Again, nothing too uh, significant. And then more significant, but much more rare adverse events, including uh, ocular symptoms similarly. Uh, it seems, and we're, we're still collecting data regarding this, maybe a little less common than uh, dupilumab, but that remains to be seen. Um, and so there are these kind of rare ocular complications as well. And so here are some of the uh, efficacy uh, data that were published in the pivotal trials for tralokinumab. And so um, again here, you know, the every two weeks, which is in blue, is uh, perhaps the most relevant for the vast majority of patients. But uh, looking at the every four-week dosing is relevant because that, that is an option for a, you know, non, not insignificant subset of patients on this treatment. Um, and we can see here that, you know, using the IgA score of 0 or 1, which is clear or almost clear, and, you know, these are all moderate to severe patients at, at enrollment, or that easy 75 response, which is 75% uh, improvement in treatment. We see here, you know, 50, 60% uh, of patients, depending on kind of which specific me uh, measure you want to use, have that, I think, what would be considered to be a very good response to treatment. The numbers are a little lower overall for the every four-week dosing. So that's something to just be mindful of if you do decide to head in the direction of reducing the dosing frequency, uh, just to monitor and be aware of um, whether the patients maintain that response or uh, perhaps need to be on every two-week treatment. And then the other class of treatments that have recently been uh, approved and uh, begun use in clinical practice are the systemic JAK inhibitors, uh, two of them, both with the same target JAK1, abrocitinib and upadacitinib. Uh, they're approved for moderate to severe AD patients who are not controlled by or in those who cannot use other systemic therapies, including biologics. You know, this is a little a bit of a vague wording. So uh, I think, you know, whether someone's not controlled or can't use other systemic therapies is uh, a, a judgment called by you and in conversation with the patient. Uh, so some of the potential benefits are that it, you know, there is not the immunogenicity concerns that may be uh, accompanied by monoclonal antibodies that can produce potentially antibodies. The body can produce antibodies against those uh, monoclonal antibodies. Many patients may not want to inject themselves, you know, on an ongoing basis. And so oral therapy may be preferred. And, you know, there's a potential for flexible dosing schedules. Um, you know, this is approved for daily use, but the reality is that um, because it works very quickly and there's not these concerns for, you know, um, use and then uh, stopping use and the development of the antibodies, there, you know, there's a potential for shorter term use to treat uh, flares, active disease, and then, you know, maybe um, have a different regimen potentially if the disease is uh, well controlled with the idea in mind that, you know, down the road, um, you know, the, the dosing can be adjusted in a more kind of nimble way than the biologics, which, you know, are only administered uh, every two weeks or every four weeks or so on. The pivotal trials for um, the JAK inhibitors certainly show that they're very effective. Um, so the Jade Extend trial was for the abrocitinib. And you can see here again, without going into too much of the, the details that the um, responses, and there, there are two different doses that I forgot to mention for both of these treatments. Uh, the recommendation is to start at the lower dose and then titrate up if needed. And so for abrocitinib, that's 100 milligrams daily or 200 for the higher uh, dosing. And, um, and so, you know, these patients were treated initially with dupilumab, washed out, and then treated with abrocitinib. 
And for patients who responded to dupilumab, you know, again, using different metrics, IGA-01, EZ-75, you see, you know, 75, 90% responses. EZ-90, which is a much more stringent um, kind of target for response, even that 80%. Um, the uh, itch scale, peak paritis itch scale, again, a large majority of patients uh, doing very well. And as you can see, the numbers go up with the higher dose. And so if someone's inadequately controlled on the lower dose, that's a consideration as well. Uh, Dupilumab non-responders, similarly, you know, not insignificant proportion of them responded to um, abracitinib treatment as well. Uh, as you can imagine, with one treatment not working, the numbers were not as good for the second treatment, but still um, shows that it can be efficacious in the, that population. They also did a head-to-head -head study comparing upadacitinib and dupilumab. And here you can see that the numbers favor patacinitib, uh at least a bit. So this is, you know, 71% uh, versus 61% easy 75 response. Uh, and this is after 16 weeks of treatment. Uh, they separate out a little more at the easy 90 level. Um, and so that's, um, you know, depending on whether easy 75 for an individual patient is uh, sufficient control, uh, you know, patacinitib may be a consideration as well. And sim similarly, the decrease in worse pruritus, uh followed along the, the clinical efficacy from the IGA or easy uh, perspective. Now, the, the flip side of the JAK inhibitor use is that there are uh, considerations or potential concerns uh, for safety. There are common adverse events uh, associated with them, the most common being uh, acne or kind of an acneiform eruption that develops with treatment, as well as nasopharyngitis, nausea, um, upper respiratory tract infections, you know, many of the kinds of side effects we see with, uh, with many of these treatments. Um, and then perhaps most importantly, and something that's very, um, I think I'm high on the minds of people who um, consider this treatment, is that the FDA has a black box warning for several, you know, potentially very significant uh, side effects for um, use of these treatments. So uh, the five that they list are serious infections and they uh, and it's required to screen for tuberculosis and hepatitis viruses uh, prior to treatment, all cause mortality, uh, malignancies such as lymphoma, major, major cardiovascular events, uh, cardiovascular death, uh, heart attacks, stroke, um, and then uh, thrombotic and thromboembolic events, DVT, PE, arterial thrombosis, and so on. When considering JAK inhibitor, it's important to have those risks or potential risks in mind. Uh, so that includes, you know, appropriate age-appropriate cancer screening, given that potential risk of malignancy, uh, screening for risk factors for cardiovascular and thromboembolic um, uh, potential uh, risks. So smoking, um, someone with a uh, history of a clot, uh, and so on. Uh, and then, you know, monitoring as well. Um, and, you know, it, it is, I think, important to note that so far, in terms of the clinical trials that have been done monitoring for all these uh, risks, there have been minimal, if any, of these side effects. Uh, longer term data certainly is needed. But um, so far, according to the best data we have for treatments, uh, for these treatments in these populations, these risks don't seem to be bearing out in a very significant way. And so I think that, um, you know, keeping them in mind and then as well as um, screening, you know, as appropriate, monitoring blood work and so on, uh, these can really be a, uh, excellent options for treatment. There are also uh, additional emerging options for AD that are in late phase clinical trials and sh uh, show 
uh, I think a lot of promise. So in the moderate to severe range, uh, anti another anti-IL-13 therapy, so in addition to trilokinumab, lebrikizumab, which uh, is very promising as well, uh, nemolizumab, which targets anti-IL-31, the quote-unquote itch cytokine. And then in terms of uh, for the mild to moderate range, uh, two additional non-steroidal topical anti-inflammatories, so tapinarov, an aryl hydrocarbon receptor modulator, which was recently approved for psoriasis. And then similarly, another phosphodiesterase 4 inhibitor, reflumolase, which also was recently approved for um, psoriasis. And, and both of these um, have very promising um, you know, initial results in the clinical trials thus far. And now in phase three, hopefully uh, these may be options for us to use in the future as well. The answer is dupilumab. My name is Victoria Garcia Albea. I go by Tori. I'm a nurse practitioner at Leahy Dermatology in Burlington, Massachusetts. Today's talk is entitled Improving Management of Atopic Dermatitis in Children and Adults, Novel Therapies, Transition of Care, and Healthcare Disparities. I'm so happy to be joined by Dr. Robert Sidbury and Dr. Benjamin Ungar. Dr. Robert Sidbury is the Chief of the Division of Dermatology at Seattle Children's Hospital. He's a professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Washington School of Medicine in Seattle. And Dr. Benjamin Ungar is an Assistant Professor in the Department of Dermatology at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City. Um, and they are going to help me present this talk. Here are their disclosures. We have one learning objective, which is discuss the components, goals, and benefits of an effective transition from pediatric to adult atopic dermatitis care with adolescent and young adult patients and their caregivers. So we're going to talk about healthcare transitions. I think it's something that we don't think about as much as I need to. So we have a case study. It's a 19-year-old patient who's new to the adult atopic dermatitis care team. They were diagnosed with moderate to severe atopic dermatitis in childhood. So we're going to hear from Kyle as a young adult describing his experience transitioning from pediatric to adult dermatology care. Here we go. Take a listen. Transitioning from pediatric doctors to my adult doctors now has been quite the challenge because it's just like you're restarting from scratch. Yes, they can get their files from before, but are they going to follow those? Are they going to look at that and say, okay, they tried this, let's try this. I found that it was repetitive once I switched over that. It was the same treatment that he wanted, that I was given. It was constantly the same until I found a different doctor. And I feel like that bond between a patient and a doctor is significant in the treatment that you receive. If you don't have that bond with your doctor or you can't look at them and have an honest conversation about how you're feeling and the treatment that you're on, you can't truly get the best from your doctor if you don't have that personal connection. So during the transition, I didn't notice a difference in my skin because I had my treatment that just carried over. It was hard going from that to a different doctor having to travel because we didn't have any dermatologists near us. It was a pain because you're going from the pediatric side where you've had that bond your whole life with them, and then you go to this new person who knows nothing about you, and it just made it hard for me because they wanted, they were 
adamant that we try different things that I knew weren't going to work because I've tried them before. So it definitely took time to adjust. But once we found the doctor that fit us, it made it a lot easier. So nice to hear from another patient, but I think um, he points out some challenges um, that we all can be more aware of. We'll talk about uh, barriers to self-management now. You know, there are a lot of issues with, with uh, barriers to uh, self-management and transitions to care. Uh, first of all, there's a lack of information and confusion about disease and treatments. Uh, historically, not a huge problem with atopic dermatitis because we had so few, but as uh, Tori and Dr. Unger have nicely highlighted thus far, uh, we have a wealth of, of new treatments, which can lead to a wealth of confusion. And so that's something that we need to manage. Um, we need to hear conflicting and concerning information about these treatments. Topical corticosteroid phobia is a huge deal. And despite all our new treatments, uh, topical corticosteroids are a foundation for us still, and we need to make sure patients are comfortable with them. We also need to um, take the time uh, and uh, sort of go over uh, the issues with both non-pharmacologic and pharmacologic therapy. Uh, we need to talk about side effects and we need to not just dismiss, but hear and uh, address doubts about efficacy that patients may have. Uh, so all of these things are critical. In terms of healthcare transitions um, from adolescent to adult care, we need to empower our patients. I've worked in a children's hospital all my life and um, we frankly coddle our patients. <laughs> we're, we're very parental in that regard and we're proud of that fact, but there's, a, there's some harm to that in the sense that uh, if patients miss, miss an appointment, um, we'll call them, you know, why, what, what's going on? Is everything okay? And then as uh, they get older and they transition to adult care, that's not necessarily the structure they're going to be entering into. So we need to uh, empower the child and the parents as they start to make their transition. We need to communicate with uh, our, uh, our adult providers from our perspective. The adult providers need to communicate with us and the parents need to be in, in that sort of triangulated uh, uh, form of care so that the patient themselves is taken care of. We need to monitor and assess for progress. Uh, we need to involve the whole family and all of this is critical to taking care of patients properly as we transition them to uh, the adult world. So this transition starts um, early. It starts at age 11 to 13. Um, this is when I think we should really start talking about this. Um, some dermatology uh, programs that I'm aware of, including ours, uh, don't see patients any older than 16 any longer. So that's a, that's a fairly young age, and we need to make parents aware of that. We need to make kids aware of that and start that process of education and empowerment earlier. And that support can last for a while, uh, up until 25 years of age or so. Uh, until we start to really make sure that uh, uh, the patient is embedded into the new system of care and going to be taken care of in the way that we want them to be taken care of. So we, these are all about um, making sure all of this happens and there are tools to help us. This is not something you need to uh, reinvent the wheel here. Uh, there are uh, track uh, surveys and questionnaires that you can uh, use that are going to be made available to you. Uh, that have these sort of checklists with these knowledge and skills to assess, is the patient ready to make this transition? Uh, we need to do motivational interviewing. We need to ask. We need to listen. We need to hear that they are not just uh, parroting information we're saying, but actually hear, hearing us and able to act on it. And then we need to engage in shared decision-making. And that's true with, with every aspect of care, but in particular this one. 
And that involves the components that we're also used to. Uh, you know, shared decision-making for me is a, a concept which is very popular now. It's something we should have been doing as providers forever. Uh, we, we should always try to encourage trust, listen to our patients, uh, make sure that, that they feel they're being heard. Uh, we have very short, quick appointments. We need to make sure that during those appointments, uh, we're not making the patients feel like they're short, quick appointments. And that's a hard trick to do. That's part of the art of medicine. We need to individualize our treatments. We need to make sure that we're not force-feeding a plan that's not really aligned with a patient's goals. Uh, we need to hear what their biggest problem is. If they've got atopic dermatitis, maybe it's the sleep loss. Maybe it's the visible appearance of the rash. What is it that they want uh, addressed first and most? And that's where we target our therapies. And then finally, of course, we need to educate uh, treatment options, uh, all of the uh, fears, misconceptions, all these things we've been talking about, and written action plans can help us there. This is an example from uh, the National Jewish Hospital, a wonderful uh, mecca for allergic and atopic diseases, and it just shows you a dynamic plan for taking care of patients with atopic dermatitis. What happens when they're doing reasonably well? Well, maybe it's just uh, bathing and moisturizing properly. When things flare a little bit, perhaps we'll have something for the face, something for the body, whether it's a topical steroid or non-steroid, and uh, instructions on how to use that. And when things flare, we've got a, a plan that's further uh, and more aggressive to address that. So we all know how dynamic this condition is. We need to make sure that the parents and the patients have a dynamic plan to match it. So um, that's the sort of pediatric perspective, as far as I'm concerned, we need to collaborate, we need to educate, we need to write these things down, and we need to uh, make sure that there's appropriate overlap. Dr. Unger, from your perspective, sort of receiving these pediatric patients, how does that jive with your practice? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think that's so critical. And, you know, this is unfortunately right now a lifelong disease. And so having patients uh, learn to manage their disease, to factor in the kind of different strategies to help them specifically improve is crucial. And, you know, inheriting patients who um, are aware of that, you know, it makes uh, continued treatment that much um, easier and um, sort of aligned in terms of goals and plans. And, you know, having them plugged into that, that kind of healthcare um, setting where they feel comfortable to continue treatment um, is very crucial. So we're going to get into our case discussion. Indeed, this is a, a child with moderate atopic dermatitis, uh, diagnosed really at six months of age, which as we see is so common. Um, of these kids de developing symptoms very, very early. Um, just entered first grade, um, is uh, having issues with sleep, uh, focusing, irritability, teachers just saying she's not interacting with her peers very much, and has noticed that some kids are asking about her rashes. And so that's, um, that's the, the story. Her physical exam shows 12% body surface area involvement, typical flexural, flexural involvement and involvement on the face. So um, here are the sort of thoughts we uh, come up with when we see a patient like this. What are the different topical therapies we might use? Um, you know, things like topical calcineurin inhibitors uh, are non-steroidal options, crisabarol, non-steroidal options approved down to three months of age now. Uh, or is this a child you might think about uh, with dupilumab, uh, such as we've talked about? Um, and so those are sort of the issues with this um, case. And if you are in fact thinking in this particular uh, patient of uh, dupilumab, how do you discuss 
this sort of uh, injectable therapy with the family. And so um, for me, uh, you know, th- these are these are huge issues. First of all, we, we uh, have to deal with steroid phobia. So uh, we, we want to address that question because a patient with mild to moderate uh, disease, that may be all they need. Moderate to severe, it's still probably part of their care. Um, non-steroidal options like methylcocalcineurin inhibitors have box warnings, which sometimes are not necessarily the greatest balm for steroid phobia. So you need to navigate through those, those waters as well. And then crisabarol, non-steroidal, no box warning, but a fair number of my patients have had some application sites stinging. So that can be a, a big barrier that you will need to, to work around. With regard to dupilumab, um, you know, it's a, it's a shock. Uh, this is a young child. Um, how, do you, how do you deal with that? These are things we need to equip our parents with, with strategies about um, how to make those injections uh, more tolerable. Um, so these are all things that, that I work with my patients through and my parents through. Tori, is that something that, that you do as well? It is. And I'm going to pop us ahead to this slide because I think um, when you're trying to decide, especially in a six-year-old, whether an injection treatment is is the best method of treating them, you have to take into consideration all of these comorbidities because the shot becomes more tolerable if it is going to reduce, you know, like we have um, sort of highlighted here, the, the distress of their disease. So I think I present it like that to my patients and their families. Like, um, you know, I know it's going to be a big step up from using these creams, but on the other side, look at how happy your child might be, you know, in just a matter of weeks. What do you think? Totally, totally agree with that. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, we have to make these treatments fit the patient and it's, uh, you know, first and foremost, does the severity warrant consideration of a therapy like this. And that's where those comorbidities that you just talked about can, can get into that. Um, as we know, dupigumab treats atopic dermatitis and asthma. So if, if patients have a certain type of asthma, that may be uh, a treatment for, for both conditions with the same, same uh, medication. So I think those are probably the, the key issues with, with this first case. The only other point I want to make is similar to psoriasis, of course, we use body surface area a lot in determining severity, but certain body parts uh, bump up the severity. So, you know, genitalia, face, hands, et cetera. And I think we can borrow from the psoriasis literature to the atopic derm patient um, in this case, where even if their BSA isn't that extensive, um, I don't think it was really commented on in this case study, but um, if they're very, very bothered and distressed, that increases their severity. So then you can count it as more moderate to severe disease because of its impact on their overall psyche. Yeah, I think that's a just absolutely wonderful point. And the other thing that's sort of analogous to that is in if um, some of the uh, providers listening to us aren't as familiar prescribing some of these medications, you know, historically with a condition like atopic dermatitis, we just put in our chart, oh, that patient's severe, therefore we're going to prescribe X. Well, here, I think because of these new medications, they're more expensive. Insurance companies are going to scrutinize these prescriptions more. I think it's important to become savvy with some of the metrics that they're going to look for, like the investigator global assessment. If you're thinking about prescribing a a medication such as dupilumab that's indicated for moderate to severe patients, then by definition, those patients are going to need to have an investigator global assessment score of three or four, moderate or severe. And then the body surface area you mentioned, 
uh, is good to comment on as well. And then special body parts as well that might sort of amplify the significance in terms of quality of life. Absolutely a great point. We have some really great questions that the audience has been sending in. Are there any lifestyle recommendations in reducing AD symptoms? Does diet have any influence on severity or recurrences? So for sure, um, you know, um, reducing irritants, things that are known to be challenging for their skin. So wool sweaters are never going to be good birthday present for someone with atopic dermatitis. There are certain things that are always going to irritate the skin. Of course, you want to minimize those. Um, if certain patients are um, triggered by heat, and so minimizing um, and cooling environments, things like that are good. Food is, is a huge, huge question because um, it's forever and a day been linked to atopic dermatitis, food allergies. Um, and there are certainly patients who have food allergy-driven atopic dermatitis, but the vast majority of patients with atopic dermatitis, though they may have a food allergy, that is not the primary cause of their, their eczema. So certainly you want to avoid it to minimize any symptoms of allergic rhinitis or conjunctivitis or other allergic symptoms, but just focusing on food when trying to treat atopic dermatitis oftentimes leads to minimizing or, or misprioritization of things that are much, much more important, like proper bathing and moisturization and um, those sorts of things. All right. And I think we have time for probably one more. At what point should a patient with atopic dermatitis be tested for an autoimmune disease to rule out that as an underlying cause? I mean, I, I can take that briefly. You know, there, there are associations with auto-inflammatory and autoimmune diseases in general. The link with AD to individual specific ones is not super clear cut. So I personally don't do routine screening. I think, you know, it's important to be aware of certain uh, conditions like alopecia areata, which may be somewhat visible. Um, and, you know, there's a potential for, you know, easy screening for things like, you know, thyroid disease, certain questions about, um, you know, heat and cold intolerance and so on. It may be useful, but uh, personally, as a general rule, um, you know, the, the AD t tends to be kind of idiopathic and sort of unexplained. And uh, I don't necessarily go down the path of looking for other conditions in the absence of, you know, clear reasons to do so. I agree. If you feel the diagnosis is atopic dermatitis, I don't look for an autoimmune disease. If the diagnosis is unclear, certainly. But if it's atopic dermatitis, I, I don't run any labs or anything like that unless there's reason to do so. My name is Victoria Garcia Albea. I go by Tori. I'm a nurse practitioner at Leahy Dermatology in Burlington, Massachusetts. Today's talk is entitled Improving Management of Atopic Dermatitis in Children and Adults, Novel Therapies, Transition of Care, and Healthcare Disparities. I'm so happy to be joined by Dr. Robert Sidbury and Dr. Benjamin Ungar. Dr. Robert Sidbury is the Chief of the Division of Dermatology at Seattle Children's Hospital. He's a professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Washington School of Medicine in Seattle. And Dr. Benjamin Ungar is an Assistant Professor in the Department of Dermatology at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai in New York City. And they are going to help me present this talk. Here are their disclosures. We have one learning objective, which is apply strategies to address healthcare disparities in clinical practice to improve the management of atopic dermatitis. So now we're going to talk about reducing healthcare disparities, which is, of course, a very important uh, aspect of the care we provide. 
So the final case study for this um, presentation is um, a woman, a mid-30s Latinx female who was diagnosed with atopic dermatitis in infancy. She moved to the United States as an infant. Parents were not fluent in English. We're going to hear um, what she experienced in her own words. Take a listen. I definitely faced a lot of disparities throughout my journey living with atopic dermatitis, even starting off as a baby being diagnosed with it. My parents are immigrants from Dominican Republic, and so they didn't really um, know or understand what I was going through at that time. They really just trusted anything and anyone um, with a white coat on um, as they were desperate for me to just heal. They didn't really have the knowledge and awareness to do their own research and to ask certain questions. I feel like that really impacted my journey as um, I wasn't really given any options, um, really just one treatment option, which was a topical growing up. That was very hard because I, I didn't, I personally didn't understand. So if my parents didn't understand what I was going through, I definitely didn't understand what I was going through. And so it, it took a while for me until I was in my mid twenties to really ask questions to my doctor. These questions I feel like um, really stemmed from my research and advocating for myself. What are the other treatment options that exist or what can I do outside of treatments to manage my skin? If it weren't for my own research, I feel like those conversations wouldn't have happened, um, which again goes to show just the disparities and the lack of resources that currently exist for our community. Again, so nice to hear from a patient um, really expressing themselves. This is so such a crucial topic. And, um, you know, it's, it's so important to remember that we are treating patients with all the complicated aspects related to that and not just treating a disease in a textbook. Um, and so, um, it, you know, we can come up with the best therapy in the world. And if there are barriers to, um, to getting it, to using it and so on, um, the patient uh, doesn't understand the considerations involved. You haven't explained it uh, entirely, then the patient's not going to get better. Uh, there are so many uh, different aspects. It's so complicated. Certainly, we don't have time to get into every single uh, detail, but uh, it's important to remember that if a patient can't afford the medication or it's too onerous from that perspective, it may not work. Uh, if they don't have access to transportation to get to appointments, um, if there's a insufficient literacy or um, language barriers to understanding how to use things, what the, the risks are and so on, then you know it's inadequate. And we can go on and on. The support systems, the uh, availability of appropriate healthcare providers and so on. Uh, and so the, the social determinants of health need to be factored in really to every patient and to make sure that we're uh, appropriately treating each patient as best as possible in the context in which they live. Um, and so, you know, certainly some major considerations are, uh, as an example, race and ethnicity, where there are differences in uh, clinical presentation and outcomes associated. And we have to be mindful of that when treating these patients. So, you know, in terms of clinical presentation, as an example, Black patients are more likely to have eczema, atopic dermatitis with papular follicular eruptions, less obvious erythema, more significant component of a post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation. Um, you know, on the other uh, hand, Asian patients with 
atopic dermatitis often have more clearly demarcated lesions that almost you know, begin looking psoriasiform, uh, more prominent scaling along those lines, like canification and so on. And so if we're not aware of these considerations, there's going to be a delay in diagnosis uh, and often misdiagnosis. Uh, and so these are, you know, examples of the things that are crucial to keep in mind. Um, and then we see, you know, the impact of these health disparities on outcomes. So racial and ethnic minorities are more likely to have treatment-resistant disease. They are more likely to experience some of the social determinants of health that are uh, barriers to effective treatment, lower, lower uh, socioeconomic status, uh, living in older homes or multiple homes, education uh, level. Um, so you know, simply uh, being Black is a risk factor for more moderate to severe disease. Um, and so again, you know, these are things that we need to be mindful of. Being aware of and recognizing the significant impact of social determinants of health and health disparities is crucial. Uh, and so that's a big part of it. But then the other part of it is to make sure that we're doing our part to reduce those uh, health disparities and be aware of the factors and address them head on. Uh, some of them are kind of big picture, very tough, systematic, you know, increasing education, um, awareness for healthcare providers. And certainly that's an ongoing effort that's greatly needed across the whole medical system. But on an individual basis, you know, working to strengthen the patient-provider relationship, um, increasing diversity and minority representation of, among healthcare uh, providers and staff, uh, it's, it's crucial to make sure that clinical trials appropriately reflect the population that we're treating across. And that means increasing diversity in the, in the clinical trials. And then from a practical perspective, you know, making sure that there's appropriate access to care for patients. Sometimes that can mean expanding office hours so that it's not uh, during the typical working hours, you know, nights, weekends, increase appointment flexibility, um, uh, telephone service available for patients when they're not able to come in and have, you know, late um, off hour questions that can have a big impact on their life, telehealth visits, um, specific educational initiatives and um, efforts for uh, the whole range of uh, patients that we see. Um, and then, you know, again, that's just an ongoing issue, just continuing education, access, and so on. Um, and so uh, I think now we'll, we'll kind of just go through a summary of, you know, the, the large amount of information that we've uh, discussed. Um, and so to start with, you know, topical therapies have a very important role for many patients, but they're, all, they're usually not effective and not sufficient for a severe uh, extensive disease. Uh, and because of that, it's important to really be mindful and have uh, systemic treatments as part of the treatment arsenal. The traditional uh, systemic immunosuppressants, which I think many people are understandably reluctant to use, uh, have poor adverse event profiles, tolerability, safety considerations. But fortunately, we've now entered an age where there are many new and frankly soon even more uh, likely to be emerging therapies that expand the options in, a, in an effective and safe way so that way we are gonna be able to tailor care for patients with different treatment options. Um, healthcare providers should uh, lead patients and their caregivers in an intentional transition plan uh, from the pediatric to adult care. And as we talked about, that is not an overnight process, but it's important to get started early and be consistent. So that way this chronic condition is treated throughout the whole uh, transition from uh, pediatric to adult care. And lastly, it's important to be very mindful and cognizant in an active way that the healthcare team across, uh, you know, really everyone involved should be uh, employing and implementing strategies to reduce healthcare disparities uh, in, among AD patients for optimal care. All right, so we're gonna get into our case discussion. In this example, 
Uh, we have a 15-year-old boy with dark skin, history of asthma, which is controlled, and relapsing moderate to severe AD. The symptoms of AD started at age five, but he was initially diagnosed with contact dermatitis, treated with over-the-counter antihistamines without improvement, ultimately diagnosed by dermatology with atopic dermatitis and treated with topical uh, corticosteroids and topical palsinurin inhibitors. They've had a recent worsening of symptoms with itching, swelling, and thickening of the skin. On exam, there's a papular rash. You can see lichenification and erythema with a body surface area involved of about 30%, which is very high. So what we were going to discuss for this case is how to approach um, use of the newer treatments. So um, Dr. Sibari and Dr. Ungar, I would love to hear what your approach is, like what goes through your head. You have um, this 15-year-old boy um, with a lot of, of surface involved. Um, yeah, I mean, I guess from my perspective, um, this is a 15-year-old child. So this is where we're going to want to talk about some of these things that we've discussed. So first and foremost, this is an injectable medication. If we're talking about uh, dupilumab versus on the screen here, um, upadacitinib is an oral medication. So uh, that may or may not drive things. This child's 15, so either of those are FDA-approved age-wise. The the, the cream listed here, ruxolitinib, is for mild to moderate. This is a kid with 30% body surface area. This, that's, uh, I'm not going to be thinking about using uh, a topical agent at this point, given the things that they've failed and the severity that they have. So I'm thinking more along the lines of these two systemic agents. And so once we've talked about systemic versus or oral versus injectable, then we want to talk about some of the, the adverse effects um, with these medications to help inform that. And so if, if you then sort of look at um, these issues, um, those are things like dupilumab, has this child had a history of conjunctivitis going into the, the, the discussion or your thought about this medication? If they had, well, that's one of the potential side effects of dupilumab that may make you more interested in thinking about other therapies. Uh, Upadacitinib, the JAK inhibitors are newer. They have a, the, the, the relatively daunting boxed warning that Dr. Unger covered nicely earlier. Um, if they're really strong history in the family or personal history of lipid, lipid abnormalities or clotting problems or cardiovascular disease, um, those are things that might influence uh, your discussion there. So for me, it's a matter of, um, number one, uh, are these drugs that we can get? Do we have access to these? Um, uh, what's the insurance situation? Are these things that the patient's going to be able to take? If so, if a, pay, if a drug is an option, then you want to make sure that you go through all of the uh, potential benefits, thinking about what things the patient wants to get better. Um, is it their itch? Is it their rash? Is it all of the above, which is usually the case? And then thinking about side effects and matching that to the patient. If you had this patient and let's say very clean history, no family history of anything that would make you lean away from uh, upadacitinib and say you had even coverage of both, which, you know, probably isn't actually going to happen. Um, would you lean towards dupilumab because it has been around longer or are you more excited about an oral medicine? Like, do you have a, a, a sort of a, a bias towards one or the other, you know, for children or, you know, older adolescents, let's say? I do. It's a great question because that, that's, you know, we're 
pediatric providers are conservative by nature. And just, I mean, tupilumab is not old. It's been FDA approved first in 2017, right, for adults. So it's not around like forever. But, long, yeah. <laughs> it, it really does. And, and, it's, and, and we've, the thing about it is it's now approved down to six months of age. Why? Because the side effect profile has been so clean and so encouraging. And, uh, you know, we, we could talk about the box warning for the JAK inhibitors and whether or not that's really uh, relevant or, or uh, uh, appropriate to consider for healthy atopic dermatitis patients versus uh, adult rheumatoid arthritis patients with, with many comorbidities where, where that box warning was really generated from. But that said, I totally agree that, that in the scenario you just painted, dupilumab's been around longer. I'm more comfortable with it. That would be my preference. And once you've explained everything, do you find that patients and families tend to get over the fact that it's an injectable? Um, I mean, especially a 15-year-old, I think probably would. But, you know, do you have to spend a lot of time counseling patients on the injection aspect of it or not so much? I do. And, and it, it, oftentimes, even with the much younger patients for whom the, the getting started is much, much harder, when they start seeing the benefits, that gets better. That said, I've certainly had patients who got better, but the shots just became too much. They just couldn't do it. And that's just a super individual thing. And, and you take that case by case and work through it. And then that, that uh, sometimes uh, directs you towards a different therapy. I want to go to our next case, but just really quick, since you are a pediatric dermatologist, do you have any tips for our audience about needle phobia, anything that you could summarize in like 30 seconds, any magic? <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean, well, we're spoiled at children's hospitals because we have things like child life where we have these specialists come who are gifted in the art of distraction. Um, and that's something that, you know, even if you're not a child life specialist, distraction is huge. Um, I tend to have patients uh, sit up uh, rather than lie down. You know, we're typically when we inject for biopsies and things like that, we always want patients to lie down because we're worried about them vasovagaling. Um, in general, with patients sitting up, they're more comfortable, they're more relaxed. Um, and um, so I tend to have them sit up for those injections. And then just making sure that they realize that it's uh, something that's going to be uh, over quickly. You can even potentially ice the site a little bit beforehand. You can potentially use some Emla cream. There are lots of things that you can do to try to mitigate some of the discomfort. I've been using the Buzzy B lately when I do intralesional triamcinolone, and that's probably something that patients could or parents could buy. I don't know how much they cost, but that's a little vibrating device that provides distraction. Yeah, I love it too. So you just use you use that little vibrating device, uh, fairly pro proximal and uh, adjacent to the actual injection, and it can be a wonderful distraction. Uh, this is a 65-year-old ma uh, man, five-year history of moderate AD, so kind of a relatively at onset. He did have a, a myocardial infarction in the past, and so his prior uh, AD therapy uh, history included um, dupilumab, which he responded to initially really excellently. Uh, but then he started to lose response to dupilumab. He was then switched to trilokinumab with inadequate response. Um, and he continues to have symptoms, again, with despite optimized non-pharmacologic and topical therapies. And so the question here is on someone who, for whom dupilumab is not working anymore, trilokinumab is not working, you know, what is the next best step in therapy? Um, and so before I kind of go through it, I, I think the short answer is there's no easy answer. Uh, this is a challenging case. And unfortunately, it's actually 
uh, all too common. And so I think it's important to consider the different options. And, you know, ultimately, it's going to be an individualized, specific, you know, uh, decision plan with the patient, uh, but some options that can be considered. So, you know, systemic JAK inhibitors are, you know, certainly indicated for a patient like this with who has, you know, uh, failed other systemic treatments. But with a history of MI, um, I think most people would say this is not an appropriate uh, treatment. Uh, there is at least the warning, and at this point, you know, the consideration that if someone has a history of an MI, uh, that you know the JAK inhibitors, abrocitinib, bupatacitinib, are not really appropriate. You could consider restarting dupilumab again with the goal of using every dosing. So you know that is off-label use, um, but. In some cases, you know, the, the loss of efficacy, such as he experienced, may be associated with just kind of a, a slow decrease. And with increased frequency of dosing, sometimes people can actually recapture that. Now, it is a challenge because insurances um, don't, I, I would say, readily <laughs> approve weekly dosing, uh, but sometimes with appeals and so on, that can be done. Um, and so it, it's good to keep that in mind as an option. We know Duplimab's safe. It used to work for him. There is a, actually a good chance that with this increased dosing, it may work again. Uh, similarly, you can try trailokinumab with every week dosing. The fact that he hasn't responded really initially to the loading and kind of uh, would probably make me a little less optimistic that weekly dosing would do the trick, uh, but it's a consideration. The downside really uh, certainly isn't there uh, from the safety perspective. So the question is how long can we go without really getting a treatment that's working for him and, and having uh, him continue suffering from the disease? Um, and then, you know, there are adjunctive therapies. So maybe we restart dupilumab or trilokinumab and add phototherapy. You know, we didn't really discuss phototherapy too much as kind of a, uh, one of the traditional uh, treatments, but uh, for many people, there's still an important role for phototherapy, you know, usually narrowband and UVB. Um, it's very safe. It can be effective. In someone like this, I wouldn't necessarily be 100% confident that it would work as monotherapy, uh, but as an adjunctive treatment to one of the biologics, uh, certainly a consideration. You know, it's important to remember that um, it works slowly, so it it's not something that you know is going to get him clear in the next week or two, even with uh, the biologics, which themselves can work a little slowly. Uh, but between the two of them, you know, I, I think there's actually cause for optimism that it may be successful. Not everyone is able logistically to do phototherapy, and that can be one of those barriers that's uh, very uh, significant. And so in the right patient, it may be an option and certainly something to consider. Um, you know, the the treatment with biologics, dupilumab, trilokinumab, those, um, you know, in clinical trials are monotherapies usually. But as we mentioned with uh, some of the other therapies, the reality is you can use that with topical therapies, topical corticosteroids, uh, sometimes even the more potent ones. And then, you know, fortunately, we now have these non-steroidal options that uh, appear to be safe, you know, for longer-term use, you know, even if that become, becomes uh, an off-label use. I don't have listed here, uh, although it is a consideration, is to now then consider some of the, you know, older traditional immunosuppressive systemics. Uh, it's not listed here because personally, from my perspective, that's something I try to avoid. Um, there may be cases where that's an option, but, you know, he has... He's 65 years old, already has a cardiac history. Uh, there is a reasonable chance that he has other comorbidities. And, you know, with uh, cyclosporin, methotrexate, and so on, you know, we are, I wouldn't say rolling the dice, on, but, you know, you're definitely opening up to, to risks that are not shared by these other options. And so I really would try to exhaust all of these before uh, going to that, but that's something to keep on the back burner also. 
Yeah, and, and ultimately, given the history of MI, uh, probably would start one of those traditional therapies even before a systemic JAK inhibitor, which really would be a very, very last um, sort of aligned therapy with a long discussion of the potential risk. So I hopefully got through some of it, but- Perfect. To, uh, I want to pick your brain on that uh, just one more second. Are you hoping that more studies come out about the oral JAKs that- uh, prove the safety in these cardiac patients or are those not going to be done? Or like, are we basically at a dead end for our cardiac patients for JAK inhibitors? That's, that's a great question. I think that there's going to be probably two stages of getting the appropriate data so that we can be confident and be a little less speculative. Although I think the speculations tend to suggest that these are actually safe medications. Uh, step one is going to be getting really good data in, you know, many, many patients, tons of patient years of treatment, and then also longer term, you know, treatment, someone who's been on it for five years, 10 years, you know, we're, we're obviously several years off from that to say, hey, you know, the, the risk of an MI in someone with no history uh, is actually equivalent to the background risk. And this is not a treatment that's going to really be associated with that increased risk certainly in this patient population. The black box warning is associated with rheumatoid arthritis patient. You know, it's a very different population and we can't just um, pigeonhole everyone into the same um, category. So that's gonna be step one. And that's gonna, I think, provide some reassurance in these kind of uh, edge cases to say, okay, well, for people without a history, this is probably, I mean, not probably, this, this appears to be really safe. Can we extrapolate that to patients who uh, have a history of cardiac um, disease? Um, and then I think, you know, that's going to be probably more of a delay. And I don't know if that's going to first be, you know, some case series, some post-marketing surveillance uh, considerations, but I do think that in, and, you know, it's, it's hard to project, but in the next five years or so, 10 years, maybe we'll, we'll probably have pretty good data that it is safe for use, uh, even in someone with cardiac history. But until we have that, um, you know, caution is, is, uh, is needed because we just don't know. And uh, given you know, the, the, what is believed to be the considerations now, um, it's just not the best option for this patient without the, without the cardiac history, I wouldn't hesitate, you know, for a moment to, to start this patient on, on one of the JAK inhibitors. Such a great explanation. I think we're all so excited and looking forward to using those. Um, but of course, everybody is a little bit nervous about, you know, exactly how to best do that. We have some really great questions that the audience has been sending in. Do you routinely recommend a baseline ophthalmology consult or eye exam prior to use of dupilumab? And I would turn that over to either Dr. Ungar or Dr. Sidbari. I'm sure I'm, I'm happy to, to get started with that. Uh, the short answer is no, I don't. Um, you know, when you look at the data on um, ocular side effects from dupilumab use, we're talking roughly in the range of 20% of patients experience some eye symptoms. So, you know, we're still talking about a minority of patients and the majority of those patients uh, experience mild symptoms that are often alleviated with simple over-the-counter eye drops. Sometimes I'll kind of bump it up to uh, some, you know, antihistamine eye drops or even in rare, ca rare cases, uh, prescription eye drops. But um, usually that's not an issue. I, I would say um, it is a very rare case where I have someone who's having uh, such significant ocular symptoms that really requires, you know, stopping the treatment or uh, significant ophthalmologic uh, intervention. Uh, I think being cognizant of it and, you know, counseling the patients to be aware of changes in eye symptoms and all that is important and uh, have them, you know, potentially 
uh, readily plugged in for an ophthalmologist if that develops is is great. But uh, I don't um, I don't have routine ophthalmologic screening. Thank you. This is regarding the last case, Dr. Ungar, that we just discussed. With that patient's age and recent MI, wouldn't that make you hesitant to restart dupilumab given his risk factors? So can you clarify that a little bit? Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, what I, my perspective with dupilumab, and this is based on my own experience, but also the data and, you know, just, it is very safe and the significant uh, side effects that can be experienced are very rare. I have no hesitation. Uh, I, I don't really see many uh, children, but I would have no hesitation starting a young child on it. I have, I have no hesitation starting someone in their 80s, 90s on dupilumab either because the safety um, profile is so favorable. For this patient, um, he had an MI, but um, I have not seen any data whatsoever to suggest that dupilumab uh, increases the risk of that, plays a role in that. And so, you know, certainly the involvement of a cardiologist in the treatment plan would be appropriate. But um, I think, frankly, you know, aside from maybe ototherapy, restarting dupilumab is, is probably the safest thing to do regarding risk of future MIs. Thank you. I have a couple of questions in the chat about coverage. So um, one is asking a little bit more about low um, low-income patients and biologics. And then the other one is a little bit more specific for the new, uh, newer treatments. So can you talk just for a minute or two about, about insurance coverage and, and how you deal with that? Sure. I, I can, I can, uh, talk about that. It's something that I live, I bet you both live every day. Um, it's just such a, Absolutely. such a chronic issue. <laughs> and so I, I do, I think um, just picking back up on one of the things I mentioned a little bit earlier is just make sure that you document um, perhaps more than you're used to documenting uh, with our patients with atopic dermatitis when trying to get the medication. So document, as Tori uh, said earlier, document their quality of life. How, how are they impacted by this? What are we looking to change? Document any things that have happened that might in fact be expensive. It's sort of a cynical way to look at it, but that's really the, the bottom line here for the insurance company. So have they had infections? Um, I've had uh, plenty of patients who've been hospitalized with their infections. Those are expensive um, for the insurance carrier. So document um, all of those comorbidities, document quality of life issues, document the investigate, investigative global assessment score. You've gotta be a three or a four, moderate or severe if you're gonna get this drug. And then body surface area if you can. Um, things like the SCORAD or the EASY, the other things, those are generally um, things, certainly if you're savvy and familiar with them, great, that's going to help, but I don't think they're necessary. And then the next thing to say is when you see these patients in follow-up, document them again. Um, you can actually teach patients that, you know, 1% of their body surface area is the palm of their hand. And so they can come in ready to tell you, I've got blank percentage of my body surface area now. So if it was 15 before and they come in telling you it's a two or a three, well, then you can document that as the medicine working and um, that that's what you need to do in follow up. So uh, all of those things help. I think one last tiny question. If a patient doesn't have a, sh a bath for a bleach bath, is there any way they can take a bleach bath in a shower? Chlorhexidine wash is an excellent substitute. Just make sure it's done from the neck down because it can be ocular and ototoxic. Uh, but I've had a lot of success using chlorhexidine wash daily. Um, I, I don't know if uh, either of you have other tips. 
Oh yeah, we just deal with this a lot with our our teens who are uh, you, they look at you like you have two heads if you say bath. So um, just put a, a a gallon bucket in the shower and put a teaspoon of bleach in it, and then use a washcloth to sort of uh, dab in and do little compresses and rinse off at the end. So a little bleach shower can work too. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Clinical Care Options, LLC, and the Partners for Advancing Clinical Education, PACE, and is supported by educational grants from Insight and Sanofi and Regeneron Pharmaceuticals. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com CME. Thank you for listening.